Section 14 of the Roman Empire of the Second Century by William Wolfe Capes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 5 Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, AD 147 to 180, Part 5. But Marcus Aurelius felt the cares of state too deeply to indulge himself in the listless contemplation which might unnerve him for the work of life he bids himself not to be a man of many words or busy about many things but to act like a roman and a ruler who has taken his post like a man waiting for the signal which summons him from life or again in the morning when thou risest unwillingly let this thought be present i am rising to a man's work why then am i dissatisfied if i am going to do things for which i exist and for which i was brought into the world or have I been made for this, to lie in the bedclothes and keep myself warm? Those who love their several arts exhaust themselves in working at them unwashed and without food. But are the acts which concern society more vile in thy eyes and less worthy of thy labor? Again, reverence the gods and help men. Take care that thou art not made into a Caesar. And to throw light upon his meaning, we may read the strong words which are poured out so abruptly. A black character, a womanish character, a stubborn character, bestial, childish, animal, stupid, counterfeit, scurrilous, fraudulent, tyrannical. In the fullness of time, philosophy was seated in his person on the throne, but he was too wise to entertain heroic aims and hopes of moulding human nature like the potter's clay. How worthless are all these poor people who are engaged in politics and, as they think, are playing the philosopher. Do not expect Plato's Republic, but be content if the least thing goes well and consider such an event to be no small matter. For who can change men's opinions, and without a change of opinion what else is there than the slavery of men who groan while they are pretending to obey? draw me not aside to insolence and pride simple and modest is the work of philosophy how modest was its aim how far from all utopian fancies of the use of force we may gather from another passage what wilt the most violent man do to thee if thou art still kindly towards him and if as opportunity occurs thou gently admonishest him and calmly correctest his errors at the very time when he is trying to do thee harm, saying, Not so, my child, we are made by nature for something else. I shall certainly not be harmed, but thou art injuring thyself. Show him by gentle tact and by general principles that this is so, and that even bees do not as he does, nor any animals of social nature. This thou must do affectionately and without any rancor in thy soul, and not as if thou wert lecturing him, nor yet that any bystander may admire. The kingdom of heaven cometh not with observation, not by the strong hand of the master of thirty legions, nor by the voice of the imperial lawgiver, but by the softer influence of loving hearts like his, was the spirit of a noble manhood to be spread on earth. For when he speaks, as he often does of charity, his words are not the old commonplaces of the schools, but tender phrases full of delicate refinement and enthusiastic ardor, such as no work of heathendom can vie with, such as need but little change of words to bring before us the most characteristic graces of the gospel standard. 
think of thyself not as a part merely of the world but as a member of the human body else thou dost not yet love men from thy heart to do good does not delight thee for its own sake thou doest it still barely as a thing of propriety and not yet as doing good to thine own self what is this but the well-known thought if one member suffer all the members suffer with it as a dog when he has tracked the game as a bee when he has made the honey so a man when he has done a good act does not call out for others to come and see but goes on to another act as a vine goes on to produce again the grapes in season must a man then be one of these who in a manner act thus without observing it yes here we seem to hear the precept let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth again on the duty of forgiveness when a man has done thee wrong immediately consider with what opinion about good or evil he has done wrong for when thou hast seen this thou wilt pity him and wilt neither wonder nor be angry it is thy duty then to pardon him translate this into christian language and we have the words forgive them for they know not what they do or again suppose that men kill thee curse thee if a man should stand by a pure spring and curse it the spring never ceases sending up wholesome water and if he should cast clay into it or filth it will speedily disperse them and wash them out and will not be at all polluted surely this is a variation on the theme bless them that curse you and despitefully use you it was the ardour of this charity which kept from extravagance or bitterness his sense of the pettiness of all the transitory interests of earth for he often has his mystic moods in which he feels that he is only a stranger and a pilgrim journeying awhile amid vain and unsubstantial shows consider the times of vespasian thou wilt see all these things people marrying bringing up children sick dying warring feasting trafficking flattering suspecting plotting heaping up treasure grumbling about the present well then the life of these people is no more pass on again to the times of trajan again all is the same their life too is gone so view also the other epochs of time and of whole nations and see how many after great efforts fell and were resolved into the elements for all things soon pass away and become a mere tale and complete oblivion soon buries them what then is that about which we ought to employ our serious pains this one thing just thoughts and social acts and words which never lie and a temper which accepts gladly all that happens or as he writes elsewhere in a still sadder vein but with the same moral as before soon very soon thou wilt be ashes or a skeleton and either a name or not even that the things which are much prized in life are empty and rotten and trifling and like little dogs biting one another and little children quarrelling laughing and then straightway weeping but fidelity and modesty and justice and truth are fled up to olympus from the widespread earth what then is there which still detains thee here to have good repute amidst such a world as this is an empty thing why then dost thou not wait in tranquillity for thy end whether it be extinction or removal to another state and until that time comes what is sufficient 
why what else than to venerate the gods and bless them and to do good to men and to practise tolerance and self-restraint he wearies of his books of the life of courts of dreams of glory and the conqueror's ambition of the blindness and waywardness of men for this is the only thing if there be any which could draw us the contrary way and attach us to life to be permitted to live with those who have the same principles as ourselves but now thou seest how great is the trouble arising from the discordance of those who live together so that thou mayest say come quick o death lest perchance i too should forget myself vanity of vanities all here is vanity he seems to say save reverence and charity and self-restraint but true to his stoic creed he still clings firmly to the thought that there is a ruling providence and perfect wisdom which is guiding all things for the best although its judgments may be unsearchable and its ways past finding out it is the peculiar feature of his character that this religious optimism has the power not only to content his reason but to stir his heart and fill it at times to overflowing with a gush of tenderness and love everything harmonizes with me which is harmonious to thee o universe nothing is too early nor too late for me which is in due time for thee everything is fruit to me which thy seasons bring o nature from thee are all things in thee are all things to thee all things return the poet says dear city of cecrops and wilt thou not say dear city of zeus or again what is it to me to live in a universe devoid of gods but in truth they do exist and they do care for human things and they have put all the means in man's power to enable him not to fall into real evils it moves his heart with gratitude to think that the sinner has a place given him for repentance and may come back from his moral isolation suppose that thou hast detached thyself from the natural unity yet here there is this beautiful provision that it is in thy power again to unite thyself god has allowed this to no other part after it has been cut asunder to come together again but consider the kindness by which he has distinguished man for he has put it in his power not to be parted at all from the universe and when he has been parted he has allowed him to return and to resume his place this reverent tenderness of feeling and delicate sympathy with nature made him find a certain loveliness in things which had no beauty to the ancient world even the things which follow after those of natural growth contain something pleasing and attractive figs when they are quite ripe gape open and in the ripe olives the very circumstance of their being near to rottenness adds a peculiar beauty to the fruit the ears of corn bending down and the lion's eyebrows and the foam which flows from the mouths of wild boars and many other things consequent upon the things which are formed by nature help to adorn them and they please the mind so that if a man showed a feeling and a deeper insight there is hardly one of those which follow by way of natural sequence which will not seem to him to be in a manner so disposed as to give pleasure there was something here beyond what he had learned from his old stoic masters they had taught him that the world was ruled by an intellect supreme with which it was man's privilege as it was his duty to be in constant unison but their phrases were cold and hard and unimpassioned till they were transfigured 
by his moods of tender fancy they had shown their followers how to meet the ills of life with dignity and calm and to face death with stern composure if not with a parade of tragic pride as if philosophy had robbed their last enemy of his fatal sting but it is a gentler humbler voice that cries pass through this little space of time conformably to nature and end thy journey in content just as an olive falls off when it is ripe blessing nature who produced it and thanking the tree on which it grew yet withal we are haunted by a certain melancholy which runs through all these meditations and as we read his earnest words we feel a ring of sadness sounding in our ears for he had hopes and aspirations for which the stoic creed could find no place and he sorely felt the problems which his reason could not solve how can it be that the gods after having arranged all things well and benevolently for mankind have overlooked this alone that some men and very good men and men who as we may say have had most communion with the deity and through pious acts and religious observances have been most intimate with the deity when they have once died should never live again but should be quite extinguished he would fain hush to rest such yearning doubts but the heart probably remained unconvinced by the poor logic which his reason had to offer but if this is so be assured that if it ought to have been otherwise the gods would have done it but because it is not so if in fact it is not so be thou convinced that it ought not to have been so at times too there is something very sad in the confessions of his lonely isolation for the air is keen and chilling on the heights to which he towered by character as well as station live as on a mountain let men see let them know a real man who lives according to nature if they cannot endure him let them kill him for that is better than to live thus or again thou wilt consider this that when thou art dying and thou wilt depart more contentedly by reflecting thus i am going away from such a life in which even my associates in behalf of whom i have striven prayed and cared so much themselves wish me to depart hoping perchance to get some little advantage by it why then should a man cling to a longer stay here from the imperfect sympathy of fellow-men he turned as by natural instinct to communion with the eternal and divine but here again he found a sorry comfort in the system of his choice the universal mind the abstract godhead or the soul diffused through all creation and revealed by nature's myriad voices these were cold and neutral phrases which might indeed convince his reason but could not animate or stir his heart he could not therefore rest content to use them always in their austere nakedness but must invest the cold abstractions with the form and colour of a personifying fancy bringing thus before us on his pages the postulates of emotion rather than of logic but meantime the poor artisans and freedmen of the christian churches were praying to their father in heaven with all the confidence of trustful childhood the rabble of the streets were clamouring for their lives and quickening the loyal zeal of many a gallio on the seat of judgment but they found comfort in the thought of one who called them friends and brothers 
and who had gone before them on the road which they must travel, supported by the unseen help of an eternal love. They laid their dead within the catacombs, tracing on the rough-hewn walls the symbol of the cross or the form of the good shepherd, but they felt no dark misgivings and no inexplicable yearnings, and so were happier in their life and death than the philosophic emperor of the proud Roman world, who speaks only once of the Christians and then notices them as facing death with the composure of mere obstinate pride. It is sad to think that an emperor so good was followed by a successor so unworthy, sadder still that that successor was his son. Could not the philosophic ruler, Julian asked, rise above a father's doting fondness and find someone more better fitted to replace him than a selfish stripling who was soon to prove himself a frantic tyrant with a gladiator's tastes? He had a son-in-law besides him, Pompeianus, a soldier and a statesman of ripe age, or failing him there were all the worthiest of Rome to choose from, as he himself had been singled out in earlier days and raised by adoption to the empire. He had himself served for many years of tutelage under the eyes of Antoninus to fit him for the responsibilities of absolute power. Was it wise to hope that an inexperienced youth, cradled in the purple and exposed to the mean arts and flattery of servile spirits, while his father was far away upon the Danube, would have the wisdom or the self-control to provide for the welfare of the subject millions? Roman gossips had an ugly story of the signs of cruelty which had shown themselves in Commodus already, how in a fit of passion at a slave who had failed to heat his bath he ordered him to be flung into the furnace, but was tricked by the smell of frying sheepskin, which thanks to an attendant's happy thought took the place of the poor bathman. True or false, the tale may serve to illustrate the current talk, and show how little men dared to hope that the father's virtues would be continued in the son. Was Marcus Aurelius unfortunate in his wife as well as his successor? We must think him so indeed if we believe the common story so confidently repeated since that she disgraced him by the profligate amours which were the talk of the whole town and the mark of scurrilous jests upon the stage, that she intrigued with Cassius and urged him to revolt and died by her own hand at last in fear of imminent detection. Yet we have grave reasons to mistrust this picture of Faustina's character, and the evidence on which it rests is very poor. The emperor himself, in a striking passage of his memoirs, speaks of her in a very different strain. When, in the loneliness of the general's tent beside the Danube, there rise before his thoughts the memories of the kinsmen, friends, and teachers who had guided him by their counsels or example, when he thanks the powers of heaven for all their goodness to him in the past, he does not fail to praise them for the blessing of a wife so obedient, so affectionate, and so simple. The touching pictures of the emperor's home life in Fronto's letters bring her to our fancy as the tender wife and loving mother. Her own recorded words, written in hot passion at the news of the revolt of Cassius, are full of affection toward her husband and cries of vengeance on the traitor, and data recently discovered in inscriptions in the Horan have disposed of the doubts as to their genuineness raised long ago by critics. In the countless medals struck in honor of her by the emperor or senate, she appears sometimes as the patroness of female modesty, 
sometimes as the power of love and beauty and flattery however gross would hardly have devised such questionable titles to provoke the flippant wit of rome had such grave scandals been believed we cannot doubt indeed that some years later there were stories much to her discredit floating through the streets of rome one writer of repute now lost to us is expressly charged with blackening her memory another dion cassius raked up commonly into his pages so much of the dirt of calumny that we listen to his statements on the subject with reserve the feeble writers of the augustan history a century later repeat the stories but avowedly as only current rumour which they had not tested for themselves but the epitomists of later ages drop out the qualifying phrases altogether and speak of her without misgiving or reserve as another messalina on the throne and later history has commonly repeated the worthless verdict of these most uncritical of writers if we hesitate to think that such grave charges could be altogether baseless we may note that faustina in her pride of birth and fashion had little liking for the sages whom her husband gathered round him and outraged probably the scruples of these ascetic puritans by her gay defiance of their tastes but their displeasure may have carried a moral sanction with it and lived on in literary circles and influenced the tone of history itself the rabble of the streets grew now and then impatient of the serene wisdom of their ruler and when he was inattentive at the games or tried to lessen the excitement of the gladiator's bloody sport they thought it a good jest to point to faustina's fashionable pleasures and to hint broadly that it was natural enough that she should look for sympathy elsewhere than to so august a philosopher and bookworm when commodus in later years unbarred the vileness of his brutal nature men might perhaps remember all this gossip of the past and say that he could be no true son of the benign ruler whom they now regretted and thus fondly embalming the memory of the prince while sacrificing to it the honour of his wife End of section 14